The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. We are in a, a new series today. We're starting a new series uh, called Tiny Books. Tiny Books. And it's a tiny series. It's only going to be two weeks long. Uh, but the, the reason why we want to do this series is I think oftentimes uh, in the church, as we, as we go through the Bible and we study scripture, we oftentimes, we hit the big books, we hit the big stories, and we hit the beginning and again, and that's fine and that's great. But I think sometimes we miss these sort of beautiful little nuggets of truth that God has for us in his word in, in these tiny books. And so uh, for the next two weeks, we're, this week we're going to be looking at Philemon, which is the shortest book in the Bible. You just read it. You read a whole book of the Bible today. It's only 1030, so feel good. Feel good. Um, and then next week we're going to look at Jude, which is almost as short. And so even if you've never read the Bible before, if you're totally foreign to it, if you're with us for these two weeks, man, you'll get to brag to all of your friends that you've read 266 of the Bible. And I know they'll be impressed. Or 133rd for you math whizzes out there. So we're uh, pretty excited for that. Um, so let's get started uh, with Philemon. And so as we get into Philemon, let me uh, break it down a little bit of the context for you real quick. First of all, it's, it's a letter. It's a letter of, of Paul, uh, who's in prison in Rome, and he's under house arrest in Rome. It's about AD 60, 60 AD. And he's sending this letter out to a guy named Philemon, uh, who lives in a city called Colossae, which is kind of right in the center of, of modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing this letter to him, and the whole purpose behind Paul writing this letter is he wants Philemon to be reconciled to his slave Onesimus. That Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who ran away, and while Onesimus ran away, he met Paul, and and he became a Christian, that he heard Paul preach, he he came under Paul's influence, and he became a Christian, and now Paul's sending this slave back to his master Philemon, who is also a Christian, and Paul's hope is that they'll be reconciled, that there'll be friendly relationships between the two of them. Now, I want to take a second here, though, because as soon as I say, uh, Paul is sending a slave back to his master, uh, I hope we have some eyebrows go up, right? Because that doesn't sound right. Like, is Paul advocating slavery here? Is the Bible advocating slavery here? I want to spend just a a few minutes unpacking that before we get into the letter, because I think that is a, a, a common concern that people have. They say, how can you trust the Bible as a moral guide? I mean, it just seems archaic. It just seems out of date. How could you possibly trust it as a moral guide? It seems like it's advocating slavery. So let's, let's break that down real quick. Um, I uh, listened to a, a TED talk by a guy named Sam Harris a couple of years ago. He's uh, part of this, this group called the, the New Atheists. They're a group of scholars that, uh, that think that not only is belief in God foolish, uh, but it's actually dangerous. It's dangerous. And, and so he was presenting this talk, and uh, he was talking about how the Bible, we shouldn't trust it as a moral guide. And, and the whole reason why he said that was because if you, you look at like Ephesians 6, uh, Paul's writing, and he says, slaves, obey your masters. And then he referenced Philemon. He referenced this letter. He said, look, Paul's sending a slave back to his master. How could you possibly trust a book like that? And so let's see, is that really what's going on here? Is the Bible advocating slavery? Uh, short answer, no, it's not, right? Okay, I'm teeing you up there. Uh, but but let's, let's just process this. First of all, we need to recognize that when we, when we read Scripture, we're inherently reading it with a context. We inherently have lenses that we look to the Bible through. And so when we hear the word slavery, we automatically trigger to that sort of horrendous, horrific time in our nation's history uh, when African people were, were kidnapped, enslaved, forced to do labor, they were abused, treated as less than human, 
right? That's kind of where our mindset naturally snaps back to. Or we think of, of modern-day slavery. We may think of that as well, uh, in which people are held against their will and they're either exploited sexually or they're used for dangerous and hard labor and they're just kept under lock and key until the day that they die. And so we automatically, when we hear that word, that's what we think of. Neither of those situations is really what slavery looked like in ancient Rome, is really what Paul's talking about here. Uh, first of all, it was just such a, a stable part of the culture. As, you, as, as, as normal as it is for us to drive cars, that's how normal it was for them to have slaves. As normal as it is for us to have running water, that's how normal it was to have slaves. It was a third of the empire were slaves. Fully a third of the empire were slaves. I'm not saying that makes it okay. I'm not saying it's ideal. I'm just saying we need to recognize that it was that, that permeated in the culture. Secondly, though, slavery then was not race-based. So it, it wasn't because one race would, would rule over the other. You could have same races, slaves within both. It wasn't permanent. Most slaves were freed at age 30, and they were granted Roman citizenship. So you're slave to your 30, and then you're granted Roman citizenship. Uh, also, slaves were not seen as less than human. That it was put legally, it was put on the masters to provide for them uh, education, food, clothing, protection, health care. And, and you say, okay, that's fine, but it's still a person owning another person. Okay, fair enough, I'm with you. Uh, so how do people become slaves? Uh, well, the main path was as prisoners of war. That uh, as people who were enemies of the states, they'd capture, enemy of the state, they'd capture them. Um, and they, they'd have them do labor for the state. They'd have them work for the country, for Rome. And uh, you may not like that, but, uh, you know, how do you think your license plate got made, right? It's the same sort of idea where, where someone who's held against their will is doing labor and, and producing something for the country. And so it's that same sort of idea. Another way people became slaves was choice, that people would actually choose to do it. They'd say, you know what, I'm out here trying to make it on my own, and it's just not working out. It's going to be better if I sell myself to that rich guy over there, work as an accountant for him, then he's going to take care of my needs. Or someone could sell themselves as a treasurer uh, to the city, or to work for the city. You'd sell yourself as a slave. And if you do that, man, you're the treasurer of the city, uh, you actually are going to have a higher social status than like 95% of the free men, because you're working in this high level. Okay, so it wasn't, uh, people could choose to do it, they could choose to enter into that. And then the final way, and this is probably the second biggest way people ended up in slavery, was debt. Uh, that if you owed some guy a huge amount of money that you couldn't pay back, uh, you'd, you'd go in, uh, in slavery to them, you'd go in servitude to them like a, um, what do we call that? It's people when they came over on the ships? Indentured servant, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, so, so they'd, uh, they'd uh, so you'd like an indentured servitude. And that's more than likely what the situation is here with Philemon and Onesimus. That Onesimus owed Philemon more money than he could pay him, and so he was working for him uh, to pay off that debt. A preset number of years was working for him, and then he'd be set free. But we see that what happens in our text is that Onesimus leaves. He doesn't pay off his debt, he doesn't work the years that he committed to working, and he escapes. And so Paul sends him back to Philemon. You say, okay, Gabe, thanks for the history lesson. Now we know about this. Uh, I'm still not super comfortable with, with Paul sending a slave back to his master. That's fine. Just recognize that Paul sends this letter with, with Onesimus. That as Onesimus returns to Philemon, he gives him this letter. And in this letter, as we unpack it, you'll see that the seeds of emancipation are sown. That, that in this letter, we see the seeds of emancipation, of, of the freedom of slaves are shown, and it's used for all time. And so that's why you see Christians are always at the forefront of freeing slaves. Always. You look at, at William Wilberforce in England in the 18th century, and you carry that all the way up until now with just numerous Christian organizations across the globe working to free slaves. 
And it's because the seeds of emancipation are sown in the scriptures. And in particular, we see that in the book of Philemon. And so let's recognize that this this book has has power in it. There's a lot to this little letter that Paul wrote to this tiny book. And so let's dig into it. And uh, as we dig into it, we're going to start at verse 8 because the first seven verses are really just Paul making small talk. Okay, so we can, we can skip that. Skip the small talk. Let's get to the real meat. Uh, and so it starts at, at verse 8. So if you guys look with me, verses 8 through 12, it says this. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And so we see here in this text, Paul's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. But you can already tell that that, that Paul's about to ask him something, that he's he's teeing him up, he's, he's buttering up to ask him something big. But in verses 8 and 9, you see that Paul says, listen, I don't really have to ask you this. He's like, I've got the authority. I could just tell you to do this. But I want you to see that this is the right thing to do. I want you to see that this is a good thing, and I want you to to own it. I want you to choose to do this on your own. And so then he goes into the situation. And he says, Onesimus is my child in the faith. In other words, Onesimus uh, became a Christian under Paul, that under Paul's influence, Onesimus came to believe in Jesus. And then he says, I know he was useless to you. And we hear that and we're like, man, Paul, it's kind of harsh, you know, calling Onesimus useless. But there's a couple things going on here. First of all, the, the word Onesimus uh, in Greek, the actual word, it, it means useful. Like it's the, the same exact word. So his name was useful. And so Paul's doing sort of a play on words here. He's like, I know Mr. Useful over here was kind of useless to you. Uh, and so he's, he's doing a play on words. But then uh, in, in what way was Onesimus useless to Philemon? Well, he was a guy who owed him a lot of money. And took off without paying him. And not only that, when Onesimus left, he more than likely stole a bunch of stuff from Philemon to help pay his way to get from Colossae all the way to Rome, where he is with Paul. And so Paul's saying, listen, yeah, I know he wronged you. I know he harmed you. I know he didn't live up to his end of the bargain. I get that. But then we get to that that last verse, verse 12, where he says, but I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending you my heart. Sending you my heart. And so I care for him. I care about him. And so as Paul continues this letter, we see that he asks Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus. And so as we continue this morning, what we're going to see in this text is that he points out how reconciliation works in three ways. And that's what I want us to dig into today. That reconciliation is necessary, he points that out to Philemon. That reconciliation is costly. And that reconciliation takes true strength. Necessary, costly, takes true strength. And we'll see that throughout this letter. And so let's dig through that. Uh, First of all, reconciliation is necessary. Uh, Look with me at verses 13 through 16. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so we see here in verse 16 that that Paul finally makes his request of Philemon. 
But he sort of butters him up for 15 verses. And then in 16, he gets to the heart of the matter. And he says, I want you to receive Onesimus, not as a slave, but receive him as a brother in the Lord. And we see that Paul is desperately trying to reconcile Onesimus and Philemon. And why is he doing that? Because reconciliation is necessary. Because in the life of a Christian, reconciliation is necessary. See, this is it. Paul's saying, listen, I know this guy wronged you. I know he hurt you. I know he stole from you. And I know that culturally, you have every right to increase his debt. You have every right to increase his workload. You have every right to be cruel to him. But I'm saying, lay it down. Don't let that get in the way. Don't let that happen. Be reconciled to him. Don't see him as a slave. Don't see him as a runaway slave. Don't see him as that guy who stole from you. Receive him as a friend. Receive him as a brother in the Lord. Because reconciliation is necessary in the life of the Christian. That as Christians, we're in the reconciliation business. It's what we do. It's what we do. Whether we, like Paul, are reconciling people to each other, whether we are are called by God to reconcile people to him, that we pray that those who are far from him would be brought near. That we reach out to those who are far from him so that they can be reconciled, made right with God. And we also seek reconciliation in our own lives and in our own relationships. That those who've wronged us, we seek to forgive. We seek to make things right. That those who we've wronged, we apologize. We seek reconciliation at all times. That's what Christians do. My mother-in-law, Terry, uh, when she was five, uh, her father abandoned her and her mom and her three siblings. Uh, He was a truck driver uh, in northern Wisconsin, God's country, and uh, and he was up there, and and one day he left uh, uh, to go on his route, and he just didn't come back. And he left behind his 24-year-old wife and their four kids, and he was gone for 30 years. 30 years, just gone out of the picture completely. 30 years go by, and my mother-in-law, Terry, finds out where he lives. Uh, that he lives in Florida, and we're specifically down there. And so she gets on a plane, and she flies down to his house. And do you know what she did? She forgave him. She forgave him. Now, by anyone's standard, she had every right to never speak to him again. Right? She had every right to cuss him out. She had every right to do just about anything to him. I think we'd all be kind of okay with it. But instead, she chose to be reconciled to him. She chose to do that. And was that easy to do? No. Was it necessary? Next time she's here, ask her. She's, it's an open book. Uh, once you get her started, actually. It really. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> ask her. Ask her. Ask her if it was necessary. Ask her if the, the fact that she got to spend her father's last 15 years with him was necessary. Ask if it was necessary for for her kids to get to know their biological grandfather. Ask her if it was was worth it so that her son-in-law could actually be the pallbearer at her father's funeral. Was it necessary? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't make it easy. Reconciliation isn't easy. In fact, not only is reconciliation necessary, but it's costly. And that's the second point we see here. Reconciliation is costly. We see this in our text. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
So what Paul does here is he recognizes, hey, if Philemon is actually going to do this, if he's going to receive Onesimus as a brother and not as a slave, there's still this issue that uh, Onesimus owes Philemon a debt. There's still this monetary issue that's going on here. And so Paul's saying to Philemon, he's saying, listen, if, if that's going to get in the way of you reconciling with him, put it on my tab. Put it on my tab. I will foot the bill. It's way more important for me for you guys to be reconciled than, than it is my financial burdens. So if he owes you anything still, I'll take care of it. I'll pick up the tab. I'll pay the cost. Reconciliation is costly. It's always costly. Uh, Jesus tells a parable, maybe you've heard it before, and it's about this king who, who uh, has servants, and he's, he's doing his numbers, and he's got this servant who owes him a ton of money. Owes him a ton of money, and he calls the, the servant and says, hey, you've got to pay me back what you owe me. The servant says, I, I can't do it. I don't have the money. I can't pay you back. Can you please have mercy on me? And the king says, okay, your debt's gone. It's removed completely, taken away. Now think about this with me for a second. Debt doesn't just disappear, right? I got eight years of student loans. It doesn't just disappear, right? Someone pays for it. And so when the king takes the debt away from the servant, who's actually paying for it? Who's footing the bill? The king, right? The king pays the cost for the servant. Reconciliation is costly, no matter what kind. If you're like my mother-in-law and you have someone who's wronged you and, and you need to reconcile that relationship, you need to forgive them, it's going to cost you. you you're not going to be able to exact that revenge you've wanted. You're not going to be able to, to seek out that justice you wanted. It's going to cost you. If you've wronged someone else and you need to make that relationship right, you have to swallow your pride and apologize. It's going to cost you. If you are trying to reconcile people to God who are far from God, it's going to cost you. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable to actually share your faith. It's costly. If you, like Paul, as he's trying to reconcile two people, if God's called you to be a peacemaker in a difficult situation, it's going to cost you time and energy and stress. Reconciliation is always costly, but it's necessary. And finally, we see in our text that reconciliation is true strength. It's true strength. Look with me at verses 19 through 20 in our text. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, I love this part of the text. Uh, because what Paul does here, I don't know if you pick up on it, but, but he's actually anticipating a question from Philemon. He's getting it. Because if you imagine you're Philemon, and, and Paul sent you back, your slave, with this letter that says, hey, be reconciled to this guy, be made right with, with Onesimus. If there's any debt between the two of you, I'll pay for it. And so he's got that. Now, if you're Philemon and you're just a little bit suspicious, you say, Paul, why, why are you doing this? Like, like, what are you getting out of this, Paul? Like, what's, what's in it for you? And so that's, that's, what he's, that's what Paul's anticipating in this answer. And, and Paul says, yeah, actually, I do want something from you. He says, I want you to refresh my heart in Christ. And what does that mean? It means do what I'm asking you to do. Be reconciled to Onesimus. Let me see the beauty of the cross in action. Saying, that's, that's all I want. 
And so Paul is willing to put his reputation on the line. He's willing to put his finances on the line. He's willing to do all that for the sake of Onesimus and Philemon being reconciled. That's all he wants. I don't know if you recognize that, but that's, that's strength. It takes a strong person to be able to do that. Essentially what Paul's doing is saying, I give of who I am for your benefit and I get nothing in return. Only strong people can do that. I give of who I am for your benefit and I get nothing in return. And so where does Paul get that strength? And and how can we tap into that? Where can we get strength like that as we seek reconciliation in our lives? Well, Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to this. He says this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, Paul's strength for reconciliation, we see it here, it comes from the reality that he knows that he's first been reconciled to God. That he knows, first of all, it was necessary that he was reconciled to God. He said, uh, we, we once regarded Christ in the flesh, meaning he didn't get Jesus. He didn't get how it worked. He didn't get how far his sin separated him from God. He didn't see his need for a savior. But then he did. He saw that reconciliation was necessary and then he recognizes that it's costly. That he says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That is, in Christ's death for us on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself that the king has to pay the debt. And Paul's saying, I recognize that Jesus paid that debt for me. And so we see that Paul finally, once he sees that, he says, and that's how I have strength in reconciliation, that God has given me this ministry. I've been reconciled to God, and now I work to reconcile others. You see, friends, I, I don't know all of your situations and everything that's going on in your lives. Um, but I do know this. If, if you're walking this earth right now, if you're alive right now, you need reconciliation in your life in one way or another. Whether someone's wronged you and you need to forgive them, you need reconciliation. Whether you've wronged someone and you need to apologize, you need reconciliation. Whether you've got someone in your life who God has placed there who's far from him and he's calling you that that you'd reach out to them, that they can be reconciled to him. Whether God's placed you as a peacemaker between two people and you're you're trying to, to bring them together, you need reconciliation in your life. And the only way you find strength for that, the only place for strength for that is you recognize that you're reconciled to God. You have to first be reconciled to God. You have to to see your need for a Savior, that that because of your sin, that there's a debt that that needs to be paid and you can't pay it. And you see, though, that, that Christ paid it for you on the cross, that he gave up everything that you might be reconciled to God, that you'd be brought into that right relationship with him. That on the cross, he paid the price for you. You see, and when that sinks in for you, 
When that's like a, a true reality that you're living in. Man, then reconciliation happens. When you see that, that the God of the universe has reached down and claimed you as his, has pursued you, has come after you so that you'd be in a right relationship with him, it only makes sense that you'd reconcile your other relationships. So I uh, went on a mission of reconciliation with a lady who's part of our church. Uh, her name is Fran. Many of you know her. She's actually not here today. And, um, and we went to, to find her son, um, so basically her, her son was missing. She hadn't heard from him for a few days and, and knowing his story and, and his situation, she said there's three options for him right now. Uh, he's either on the street, in jail, or dead. And uh, she was certainly hoping for, for one of the first two and she said, we, we gotta go find him and, and um, said that I could come along with her. And uh, for those of you that know Fran, she's about that tall. Um, but, but she's got strength and, and she had a plan. And you might imagine trying to find one person uh, in the city of Austin is a bit like finding a needle in a haystack, but, but her plan was this. Uh, we'd go downtown and, and we went to the first group of homeless people we could find him. And, and she, she went up to, she just kept trying to find like the scariest looking guy and, and would go up to him. And she had a picture of her son on her phone and said, hey, have you seen my son, Justin? Have, have you seen this kid? Have you seen this boy? Can you help me find him? And they'd say, oh yeah, check it with those folks over there. And so her and I would, it's raining, and so her and I would, would trudge, you know, three more blocks, and, and we'd, we'd talk with the next group of folks. She'd say, hey, have you seen my son? And I remember there's this moment where we were walking from, from one group of homeless people in the rain to yet another group of homeless people. She's on her third phone call with her third different social service agency trying to find her son, trying to find out where he is. And I thought, man, like, this is the gospel, right? Like, like this is it. Like, her son has done absolutely nothing to warrant this. He doesn't deserve this much work, this much effort, this much love, but she is pursuing him hard. She's looking all over this city, trying to find him, doing whatever she can to reconcile that relationship, to make that right. Now, friends, you see that that's what God has done for you. That you were his lost son, you were his lost daughter, you did nothing to deserve it, and he's done everything to move forward towards you to reconcile your relationship to him. That you'd be made right before him. And friends, when that sinks in, man, of course you can have the strength to forgive that person. You're taken care of. Of course you can have the strength to apologize and swallow your pride. You're good to go. And of, of course you can help bring peace between these two people because you've got peace with the king of the universe. Of course you can share what God has done with your life with a world that's desperate to hear it. You've got strength. There's true strength in reconciliation. That's my prayer is that you'd experience that reconciliation in your life and that your heart would be refreshed in Christ. If y'all please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, relationships are hard and they're tricky and they're costly and they're painful sometimes. But God, I pray that we would tap into your strength, that we would tap into your grace, that we would recognize the great love you have for us, that you've reached down into our lives, you've claimed us as your own. 
You did the hard work for us, Lord. Help us to see that love. Help us to be aware of that love that we might extend it to those we need to reconcile with in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.